You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. If you kill him, all this be mine. Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club. We're so excited to be back for you this week. And oh, with all the supplementals going on, we still have a main show to do. And I'm really excited to be back this week because we are going to be talking some more Bond. As this year is the year of Roger Moore. And we will be wrapping up Roger Moore this year and then heading on to Dalton and Pierce next year. So super excited about that. But here... We're going to be talking about A Live and Let Die. And if you've been listening to the shows, you know that I can't do this alone. I have some incredible guests that are going to be back today. And with us, as she's going to be, uh, she got herself into this, so it's her own fault, <laughs> Christy Morris. Hey, Christy, how's it going? Hey, Matt. Hey, John. It's hey awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me back for another. Uh, although it's Roger Moore, not one of my favorite people, but um, it's not his fault. You know what's that's so funny. You're absolutely you know, he's he's not my favorite Bond, but he is the nicest person. Okay. So like I'm sorry. See him in, yeah. yeah. When you see him in interviews, like you know, cause he's like a UNICEF ambassador and everything, like this guy is is an incredible human being. Uh but anyway, yeah. you know, you're absolutely right. He's 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 not necessarily my favorite Bond, but that's okay. And he was he's in the Spice World. So yes, that's true. Oh my I gosh, mean, I forgot that. And I'm a Spice yeah. Girls fangirl. Don't you dare forget that. <laughs> but I had to say I got my glass of foo yuck ready. While oh good. Talking. Oh good. <laughs> Excellent. And as everybody can hear the dulcet tones of the one and only and if you're following him on social media these days you might think his own supermodel John Champion. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that, Matt. Really appreciate it. It is great to be here tonight. I'm so glad to see both of you and talk to you and and talk about a a movie that I, I think might be a little bit misunderstood. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion of uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. I am too. With uh, with that kind of introduction from you, John, I can't wait to dive in. Before we do, just want to remind everybody, you can find all the shows that Trek FM does over on Apple Podcasts. Um, now, if you're online, you can just search iTunes.com slash Trek FM. And of course, if you've got iTunes, you can just look us up there. <laughs> um, but... We've got so many different shows for you to check out, so make sure you do. Uh, we're a feature provider there. We're very blessed uh, for them for featuring us as a podcast provider. And so uh, you can also check us out on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And we are... And we have our listeners-only discussion group. That's called the Babel Conference. Uh, that's on Facebook. Now, if you're on Facebook in that search field, type Babel into that search field. You'll pull us up. Uh, if you're on our website at trek.fm, hit discussion on the menu bar, and that will bring you right over to the group. And last but not least, if, if you ever just want to uh, send in your thoughts about uh, the show and you don't necessarily want to put it on Facebook or somewhere else, 
you can go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose a 602 Club, and that'll come to me and the host that week, and we can interact with you that way if you want to have a more private or long-form discussion. So, well, guys, what is so interesting is diving into the history of Bond as we're continuing Bond, I keep finding that the movie that comes up, I'll watch it, and I'm watching the extras, and I'm reading behind-the-scenes stuff, that movie was actually usually seems to have been planned like three movies beforehand, but that didn't end up working out. And and actually, they were filming You Only Live Twice, and their goal was actually to make The Man with a Golden Gun. And in fact, they even had invited Roger Moore to play the role. So things could have been very different if that had worked out. And the main reason was they were going to use uh, Cambodia as a filming location, and there was an uprising there, and it just led it to being completely impractical. So uh, they canceled that, and we get on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So I had a question for you guys. I wanted to do a little bit of thought experiment here. If they do The Man with the Golden Gun and Roger Moore is Bond, we never get Lazenby how do you think On Her Majesty's Secret Service plays out with Roger Moore? Because we talked about that idea if Sean had done it, but do you think that works at all with Roger Moore and the kind of the way he ends up playing Bond? Uh, I don't think that it would have worked personally because of the way that they take the character into, you know, much more of a, I think, a sensitive role and, you know, ends up um, you know, getting married and wanting to possibly quit being Bond. I think that Roger Moore really plays more of the, you know, Bond that's never going anywhere, really not interested in settling down um, kind of guy. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that Roger Moore's maybe only advantage here is that, you know, he's older than Sean Connery, but looks younger than Sean Connery, particularly at that time, yeah, if you're talking absolutely. about like 1968, 69, when OHMSS was made. So um, I think his advantage in that would have been that, uh, like Lazenby, he would have come across as very young. And I think that's something you can buy with Lazenby in that role, the way that love story is written. And I think you can also buy Roger Moore falling in love maybe more so than you could Sean Connery. But I, the difficulty here is that we know that when Roger Moore came into the role, he wanted to lighten things up. And that it was it was sort of the actor meeting the script and then the script meeting the actor. So they found this vein that they wanted to hit with that version of James Bond as opposed to the version that we got with Connery. So I don't know if we would have bought it as an audience, um, kind of the, the serious undertones of OHMSS and then certainly the end of that movie. So that that's really tough. But then you have to ask, okay, if that would have been Roger Moore's first outing and he was sort of still young and fresh and the Bond series was something different at that moment, would they have found the right balance? Would they would they have been able to kind of mold the role to fit him? I don't know. I mean, that, that's, I guess that's a question for an alternate history. If we you know, go back in time, that's a tough call. I think he has some advantages there, but, but I don't know if we would have bought it. The, the question that I come to is, at that point, does Roger want to change the role the way he does when he does come on and live and let die? 
Right. And you know, a, a, a 30, say like a 36, 37, 38 year old Roger Moore might have different feelings about than a 45 year old Roger Moore. Right. Um, you know, it, it, he's newer, younger, fresher. He's just off the saint and maybe just glad to have the gig. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and I'm thinking that, you know, if you do The Man with a Golden Gun then, it actually might be a slightly more serious movie than you get with what we do get. And then if you do that, you could flow into On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And, and this is the thing. As Moore plays Bond, his style, uh, as he's older, he gets the role, it becomes his, he makes it his own. I don't think uh, that On Her Majesty's Secret Service plays well for him. But thinking back, doing the thought experiment with After You Only Live Twice, it's the man with the golden gun, and then OHSS, I actually think it could have worked, but mainly because I don't necessarily think that he would have changed Bond as much. I I wonder if he actually might have made Bond a little bit more serious again and gone with that kind of early Dr. No type feel instead of maybe a little... And this is, again, I'm just totally speculating, but it just created this really interesting idea because it's so... It's so strange to me that so many people that come into the Bond world are people that floated around the Bond world for a long time and were at one time or another already going to be Bond. You know, it happens with Roger Moore. It ends up happening with Pierce. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's just lots of different ways in which the Bond universe works. And one of those things is that a lot of times the guy who ends up playing Bond, well, he's not going to play him now, but he'll play him later. Uh, and so I, I thought that was, I don't know. I mean, well, I'm going to throw out two more weird factors here. Okay. So one, one factor to consider is style. And I know that this shouldn't really matter, but look at our reactions to diamonds are forever. Okay. So that's mm -hmm. a movie where you came off of this incredibly cool, charismatic actor, Sean Connery, looking like a million bucks in his first few Bond movies. And it just so oozes this sense of sixties adult cool and then you get to 1971, and it looks like a cheap cop movie made for TV, right? Roger Moore in 1968 may have a very different look from Roger Moore in 1974, you know? So even then, that might be a factor that sort of would change our perception of who this guy is and the world that he lives in. But by the time you get to the mid-70s, well, and look at Live and Let Die, it's just a strange-looking movie, particularly for a Bond movie. The other factor to throw out is this. Mammoth the Golden Gun was uh, Ian Fleming's last Bond book, and it bears almost no resemblance to this movie at all. In fact, there was some weird controversy, which I, I think has been settled now, but there was a weird controversy about how Fleming didn't actually finish Man with the Golden Gun. Um by most accounts, he did. I, like I said, I don't think that's a controversy anymore. Um, but basically, you have the name Scaramanga <laughs> and, you know, very little else that is directly reflected in this movie. So had they made that movie and had they made that with Roger Moore, may have been a totally different thing. Again, it's a parallel universe akin to 
the mirror universe in Star Trek just bears very little resemblance to what we know. Yeah, that is a funny thing because if you read a lot of the Bond books, you're like, wait, this <laughs> when this this is only the name. They yeah, really just took much. the name. They're like, yeah, all that's crap. We're changing it. (laughs) (laughs) But I like that you you both added that um, perception because and that's why I think, like Matt said, it's worth discussing this experiment because I was thinking of Roger Moore as he is in Man with the Golden Gun and how that age and everything with his style would play in on her majesty's secret service i didn't think about if he's younger if he's just starting out how he might do it completely differently i totally get what you're saying with connery in the beginning and then in diamonds are forever yeah. or or at that other universe it would be the more that we know and you plug him into that movie and then we don't have any more podcasts to do because the series died <laughs> so yeah that's true that that act yeah ooh, ooh. well and that that's so interesting too because you know uh there's such that sh- internal struggle that does end up happening with OHMSS and the fact that you know it it's not quite the hit that they want it's not a bad movie it doesn't do horribly on any you know shape or term or anything like that look it's it's just not a bad movie in the sense of box office it's just not what they're used to and, of course, so with everything that happens with George in the first place, uh, him saying he's not going to come back before the movie's even really out, it, it, it turned into a mess. So it could have ended up with that way. And then they get Roger to come in, and, and he becomes that kind of very steady person. I mean, he, he becomes the rock with which they built a whole new bond on, you know, and... and the interesting thing about going through this way, John, uh, one of the things we've talked a lot about is the idea that, you know, there really are iterations of the character. And, you know, each person who plays Bond brings something different that adds to the character and then they make it their own. And it's it's the same character, but it's different. And that's just the kind of the way it is. And, and you know, love him or, or leave him, Roger Moore created a foundation for them to build a lot of movies on because he was so rock steady as a person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of the the business of Bond, you really couldn't ask for a better thing. Now, as far as the art of Bond, you know, it's so subjective. And I, I have a lot of friends who fall very firmly into one camp or another. Um, and it's not that I'm afraid of picking a side in any of this, um, but I, I kind of look at it like um, uh, a Shakespeare play. Laurence Olivier can play Henry V. Kenneth Branagh can play Henry V. And a lot of actors in between can play Henry V. And every time you see Henry V, there's something new, different, some sort of nuance is brought to that role because you're seeing somebody else interpret that story the way they want to interpret it. And, and it's not just the actor, it's also the director and it's also the set designer and, and it's everybody else involved who wants to put sort of their spin on what you take away from that performance. So I'm I'm really good with people reinventing. I mean, hey, we're on Trek FM. If we want to talk about reinventing franchise, <laughs> reinventing stories with different actors, we do not need to look any further than probably every other show on this network, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And uh, hey, they're about to reinvent it sure all over are. again yeah. soon. So 
one of the one of the quick behind the scene things that happens, uh, and I totally forgot this, but this is the last picture that Broccoli and Saltzman actually produced together. And that is because uh, Saltzman needs to sell his share of Eon Productions because he has quite a few financial problems. And so the film franchise goes into the hands of just Broccoli from now on. And, um, you know, I wonder, and I don't know how much that hurts uh, the films coming, uh, but I, I guess that might be an interesting question as we look at those films down the road, if there's anything that we felt like is missing at all. Um, I'm going to say no for the next one. I'm going to answer that question <laughs> right now because it's The yeah. Spy Who Loved Me, and there's nothing right. missing from that movie because uh, it becomes, I guess, the quintessential uh, Roger Moore film. But that was that was an interesting thing that I forgot had happened behind the scenes in this one, that they had to dissolve their partnership after this. And not because they wanted to, but just because Saltzman felt like he didn't have any other choice. And it sounded like it, you know, it, like you said, it, it wasn't really his fault. It just was a bad time period. And he ended up being a person who ended up having a lot of debt all at once and had to get rid of it somehow. Really interesting part of, of James Bond movies. And John, I love that you brought this up earlier, that a lot of times that they have very little to do with the book other than some names uh, and then the name of the book. And part of that is location and that in the movie, most of this story takes place in Jamaica, but, you know, they've already been to Jamaica a few times. And so one of the parts of writing a Bond movie became, okay, so where haven't we been that's really exotic and how can we put Bond there? So it's not so much about story points. Like you can have, you know, the characters be in any different, you know, part of the world. Um, but we just want to go somewhere cool, like that people want to go. And that's really part of the, especially that older Bond movie formula. And I was really interested in some of the places that they wanted to go because, wow, I'm not sure how that would have played out. I mean, um, Beirut, Iran some really interesting choices that they first had. Well, and, you know, remember, though, in the late 60s, early 70s, Beirut was a really cool place. I mean, that that was like, it'd be like going to Dubai now, you know? You're going to, like, a really cool, really wealthy place. So I can see why they would want that, and they still kept that little hint of it in there. Um, and Iran, yeah, it could have been fascinating. What's interesting to me about the locations in this you have a perfect example of a location in the previous film not working and a location in this movie absolutely working. Now, Bond very often, we think, takes place, uh, Bond stories, we, we think, take place in the sort of rarefied, very glamorous world, right? And we've seen a lot of that with Connery, and we see a lot of that in the later Bond movies, but Live and Let Die starts in Harlem, and Bond is very out of place but there was part of me that wanted to like that because he was in this very real world, very tangible place that you can kind of relate to. Like you can just go to New York for all the people yeah. who are listening in our American audience. It's very easy to relatively easy to get to Harlem and walk around in those locations. Right. And in this, you're in an exotic location. You're in Thailand, 
but it doesn't feel like this incredibly overwrought, removed, sort of gilded version. The hotel is beautiful. <laughs> that, that set for the hotel is incredible. But all the stuff in the streets, all the stuff out there was sort of everyday props and real people on the streets. It, it, that's an example of that kind of location really working where it didn't work in the last movie. So I'm glad that they, they made it exotic, but they also made it sort of real world, livable. Yeah, that's that. That is something I hadn't actually thought of because there's something about the the way that these locations work, and it feels more like a Bond movie. I mean, we end up in places we'll go back to, uh, like in Skyfall, Macau, and things like that. Uh, you know, but uh, there's something I think about the Far East that so many, especially people in the United States and the United Kingdom, we haven't gotten a chance to visit, and therefore it feels otherworldly to us, and. Yeah, like you said, you know, when they're in those canals, it's it's just those people's lives. It's just where they live. There's nothing glamorous about it. It's just the, you know, uh, the floating market. And it's a super cool place, but it's also just where those people do business every day, you know. And, and like you said, it feels very down to earth. And yet, at the same time, it's heightened because James Bond is there, uh, which is interesting because... There's something about, say, Vegas or Harlem at that time period that even Bond isn't able to heighten. And maybe that's because in Americans, we are too familiar with the problems that were happening in our country to make it be like, oh, man, Harlem, even Bond can't make that cool at that point. <laughs> yeah. There's so many problems there right then, you know, that, that and so um, I, I think our divorcedness from how far away that they are is what allows us to do that. I don't know. Maybe I deconstructed no, that too call. much, but that was good just call. something I was thinking of while you were talking. I wanted to ask you, John, because I know that you are a ship aficionado and you oh, love man. ships. And oh, one man. of the one of the big things here and why they chose Hong Kong, uh, they loved the wreckage of the uh, Queen Elizabeth. And the idea of using that for a base. So, one, give our listeners a little behind the scenes of what happened to the Queen Elizabeth, uh, because it is such a cool set. This this made me so excited as a kid. It makes me so excited now. So I'm just going to derail the show for the next 45 to 55 minutes, and we'll just talk about that. Okay. <laughs> no. okay. Um, so here's here's what you need to know about the Queen Elizabeth. Um, launched in 1938, a couple of years after the Queen Mary, as many people have said, the, the larger, more perfect of the two sister ships. It was indeed at the time the largest ocean liner in the world and absolutely beautiful. But you want to hear a cool story. So in 1938, when the Queen Elizabeth was to start sea trials, and now sea trials don't last that long. You have a minimal crew on board. The ship is not fitted out yet. Right. But remember, it's 1938 off the coast of England. OK. And what happens? They get out to sea a little bit. The captain opens his orders and it says, this is not a sea trial. You head full speed to New York. So the first mission of the Queen Elizabeth was to go to New York and get fitted out for war. And nobody had any idea that this was happening. This was under top wow. secrecy. Right. So the Queen Elizabeth didn't actually get fitted out and start passenger service until the late 40s, until after World War II. 
and then had a fabulous career after that. Um, look up pictures online. It's a beautiful, beautiful ship. Um, but by the late 60s, when the Queen Mary was retired, then the very next year, the Queen Elizabeth was retired. We thought the Queen Elizabeth would end up in uh, Port Everglades in Florida as sort of a floating tourist attraction like the Queen Mary is today in Long Beach. That didn't last long. She was purchased and turned into Seawise University. So it would have been this massive ship that would be a, a college university. You'd go study on board and live on this incredible vintage ocean liner, right? And under some very mysterious circumstances, she caught fire during the conversion. And during that fire was essentially left um, capsized in Hong Kong Harbor. For years and years and years afterward, this wrecked hulk sat there. Looked very much like the Normandy, the same thing that happened to Normandy in 1941 in New York. And it's just such a shame because it was a beautiful ship that could have had this ongoing career under a different name. But man, does it make for a magnificent set in this movie. I just thought that was the coolest thing. Why wouldn't MI6 have a, uh, a base there? And when I was watching this again, I was watching it on Blu-ray and I kept freeze framing. Obviously, they created new sets. It's not, a, it's not an exact replica of what the interior of the Queen Elizabeth looks like. But I love the little details, like obviously the slanted floors and slanted doors. But then they would cut out a section of floor to sort of heighten a room. And it looks magnificent. It's absolutely great. And even the whole thing looked slightly off kilter when he yeah. first walks in. It's like everything behind him is crooked. Right, right. Like I, I love the bar. a capsized boat. Yeah, I love that he's he's walking on one level because they put on sort of floors so you can walk straight. But then sort of behind him, there's a bar and there's people at the bar, but it's off angle. It's off angle. You know, like you'd have to crawl your way up yes. there. Yes, yes. It was, it was one of those things where Bond and the producers just made use of something so unique and it worked so well for the story, you know, because at that point he thinks he's been captured and he's getting away. And then they're like, Oh, welcome to the queen Elizabeth, Mr. Bond, you know, uh, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, the fact that, that, you know, and who else, but MI6, but to use, uh, the queen Elizabeth as their, um, they're, they're the mode of operations in the Far East. Just fantastic. <laughs> it, it, it's funny, though. I, I'm going to make a, a recommendation to MI6. So they really need to work on their uh, code phrases and stuff like that. How many times has Bond encountered somebody who he thinks is going to kill him or, uh, you know, expose him or something like that? But then it turns out that they're actually an agent on his side. You know, Felix Leiter at first. Yeah. Um, Tiger Tanaka, you know, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, really, they need a secret handshake or something. So then Bond can be like, oh, or like a code oh, okay. phrase, you know, I mean, a code or a code yeah. phrase like, you know, yeah, it's rainy today in London, you know, something like that. But yeah. I hear in New York, the weather is fine. You know, come on, yeah. guys, it's not that hard. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> well, yeah, because when he first walks up to Lieutenant Hip or when the lieutenant walks up to him, you think that he's going to take him in and that it's all part of Scamander's plan. Right, right, exactly. That's an interesting thing that happens in this movie is the fact that it's it's a very different type of Bond film. And mainly it's because we have a very... A unique Bond villain who turns out to be an alter ego 
of a Bond in a lot of ways. And, and Scaramanga uh, is Bond's equal for the most part uh, and somebody who does a very similar job in a lot of ways and creates an interesting mirror for Bond. And I thought to me, you know, re-watching it, that's, that was actually the most fascinating thing is the, the, the kind of the amoral character who uses that skill that Bond has for his own gain and the character like Bond who has a belief, a moral system that has him doing this job for a very particular set of reasons. And they have a conversation about that, but I wish it had been played up just a little bit more because I think that is a truly fascinating theme. And if they'd obviously done the story today, I think that would be the kind of the crux of the whole storyline. But it makes for what I think is Roger Moore's first good villain. Like, it, you know, the, the, I, I think it creates a very interesting... And it's Christopher Lee, so I mean... You can't really go wrong. Yeah, that's what I was going to add in. Christopher Lee, for me, was the, the most redeeming part of the movie. I think that he played an incredible villain. I think that the entire time that he's on screen, every single time, he has you captivated because he's so serious. He's very calculating. And that he does have this constant theme of from the very first scene where he has some guy come to his house and is going through the fun house. Um, you know, fighting him, um, you suddenly see the wax figure of Bond and you're going, oh, wait a minute. It's like he has this obsession with Bond and either wanting to be better than him or wanting to kill him so he doesn't have competition. It, that's what I thought of was that they're both sort of like hitmen in the same universe and that this guy is so obsessed with being the best that he wants to get rid of Bond. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Lee, that, that's inspired to have him in that role. It, it really is such a good bit of casting to have him there. And I agree with you, Matt, that look at the 2000s Bond, and you have a guy who has some conflict about what he does. This is 1974. It's a different world. And we in the audience are not supposed to question at all what Bond does. <laughs> but had that conversation played out a little bit longer, I think what's so so multi-layered about what Christopher Lee is doing is that he is, yes, he, he is amoral. He is morally bankrupt. He has this fascination with Bond. He, he really is seeking approval from Bond and at the same time is going to kill him. It's an incredible bit of psychology to watch him play, but he's still so cool. And he's so ah, mysterious. I mean, what else can you say about him? It's Christopher Lee. Well, I mean, you know, and he has a third nipple. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and I got to say, uh, Three's Company. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> no. you know, uh, I don't know what, if it gets much sexier than yeah. that. Yeah. Um, which I love that they actually use that with Bond pretending yeah. to be him and mm -hmm. they just put the little plastic nipply thing on his chest yeah. and it's just fantastic. And then he just starts taking off his shirt and goes, hi, yes. Pat, it's me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty mm -hmm. much exactly what he does. Absolutely. They should have given those away as a premium when the movie opened. I think that would have been Oh, great. gosh. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Let, let me say this, though. I, I love the design of Scaramanga's house. It, it really, like, there's shades of Dr. No there, but in this yep, sort of absolutely. amped up 70s way. And if I had the money, I would have a fun room just like that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think we have to give him credit well, there. Well, and that's, that's something that's so interesting, too, because Christopher Lee, uh, as Ian Fleming's step-cousin, and was supposed to be Dr. No. Mm. And Fleming had even suggested that Lee be him. And by the time that that came out, Fleming, uh, and this is coming directly from Christopher Lee in an interview, he said he he didn't always remember things that he was supposed to. And uh, so I didn't get the part then. Uh, and and I have to say, it it's a bit of luck that, that he forgot because I think he's a much better Scaramanga and he kind of would have been kind of wasted with the Dr. No role. He would have been fine. He, it's Christopher Lee. But I think there's something about him being six foot four, very imposing when he's next to Bond. Uh, it creates a just overbearing presence when they're together uh, that, you know, I don't know many people could pull off. Plus, how many people do you know look that good in a Yes. Like that? Yes. Good call. Hey, by the way, and if you want me to uh, make another Christopher Lee to Ocean Liner connection, okay, and I think it was 1983 TV movie Goliath Awaits, which was shot on the Queen Mary with Christopher Lee as the uh, twisted young engineer who then turns the wreck of the Poseidon, no, sorry, not the Poseidon, the Goliath, into his uh, sort of dystopian world in a bottle it's um it's pretty awesome it's actually not an awesome movie but he's awesome in it isn't there a man from uncle episode where that's happening Ooh. too where they're the the they find this group and they're going away on this ship and they have to infiltrate them i remember i maybe oh man i feel like there's a it's like a first or second season episode must be season yeah. two I, but okay, we, we, we got to we got to figure we that out. Talk. Okay, find uh, <laughs> sorry about that, everybody on the podcast. If you yeah. haven't, if you've never watched the original Man from Uncle show, you totally need to. It's Do. fantastic. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you guys because this is something where, as as good as I think the the villain is Scaramanga, one of the things that kind of gets thrown in for his story uh, is the solar agitator and this whole idea of the energy crisis that's kind of starting to happen in the world at this point and they they kind of tack that on i feel like because they never really explain why scaramanga is after this other than money but he already has a lot of money because he <laughs> kills people for a million dollars a shot it doesn't seem like he has a money problem so is he just bored <laughs> That's that's a good question, you know. I, I thought one of the notes that I took was assassinating high fat makes no sense. It just it's just kind of out of nowhere. Really, did did you have to do that? Really? I mean, we know you want the Solex agitator, but come on. Um, so maybe maybe Scaramanga wants to break out into a new business. Maybe the wealth isn't quite enough. Maybe he needs the rush of power as well. Maybe he's angling to get hired by Spectre. Or something because it's not just it's not just good enough to kill people he's sort of he's maybe the top of 
his profession when he does that, but he's not in the big leagues yet. He's not in like, uh, you know, uh, uh, a position to take over the world. Maybe that's so what he's saying. Means. The world is not enough. Oh, manga. S- sit on that one for a while because I think we could use that again. <laughs> we could use that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right because he says um, to Bond at one point, I, I, it's really creepy, but I learned I enjoy killing people, which is sad. Um, but you can tell that, I mean, like you said, Matt, he doesn't have a money problem. Um, I wonder if he killed High Fat just for the mausoleum joke. <laughs> That's good. He's like, he likes it so much. <laughs> Put him in it. Um, he had been working on that all yeah, day, too. Finally. Like, all day. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is just he he either wants just more power, unlimited power, or he wants to rule the world and everything in it. Um, because, I mean, he has the house, he has money, he's got his golden gun with his golden bullets, and I think he is bored. Uh, yeah, I mean, he he's not quite Goldfinger, the man with the Midas touch, yet, you know, he doesn't have that much, I guess, uh, so... Uh, maybe he's working his way up to that. You know, he, he he's not, you know, I don't even know if he'd be like number 10 inspector. Maybe he's like number 12 <laughs> at this point. And he's trying to get to like number four on the list or something. I don't know. I it, Look, it, it's the loneliest profession. He needs friends. That's that's what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah. 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 There are a couple of uh, new characters that happen in the movie uh, that, you know, they, they turn out to be, well, at least one really leaves an impression, and I think that's Nick Knack as the villain's henchman, and uh, a very unusual henchman as well. I, I, I forgot how much I kind of enjoy his craziness. Uh, like, if you kill him... All of this will be mine. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's hilarious. that's awesome. Of course, the henchman thinks like that. Yeah, yeah. He's I mean, Hervé Villechaise is pretty awesome in this. This is before we knew him as Tattoo on Fantasy Island, and and, and I read that. Yeah, the plane, the plane. Right, right. So this was before that, and I read that he. He didn't have any acting jobs. He was living out of his car when he got this. So it's pretty amazing that he's in this and he leaves such an impression. He's just, he's little odd job. And that was kind of yeah, the thing. They, they, when he's got the suit, he's got the hat. Yeah. yeah, who talks? Yeah. Yeah, I loved him in this. I love that, uh, it, you know, from the get go, they have him running the circuit board for the funhouse. <laughs> well, and, and then and he's getting this perverse pleasure like you can tell he's like oh maybe this is the time i killed him yeah or when he <laughs> says uh, oh no you can't use the stairs what are you gonna do <laughs> um that was cute my favorite thing is that uh them talking in the behind the scenes they're uh they're pretty kind uh to hervé but it does sound like he is a horn dog, uh, and he's like out in the the you know the brothels and stuff till very late at night when they're filming there in in Taiwan. Uh, apparently, he came on to Maud quite a few times, uh, you know, um, which she politely declined, uh, you know. So it, it's just really funny, and it, it, it like 
there's so much of like you what you hear about him behind the scenes where you feel like he just kind of is knickknack. It's 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 great. It's it's great, and I love the the way that he interacts with uh, Christopher Lee's character, uh, Scaramanga, and then of course with Roger Moore as Bond. It's it's it is very memorable. It's probably one of the most memorable things in this movie. Is he's Nick very Nick. good at, as an actor. He's very good at what he does. Um, and yes, he, he seemed to live this sort of troubled life, um, which ended tragically. But I, I love that he left such an impression in this. He left such an impression in Fantasy Island. Um, and I think it's it's only right that that last shot is him caged, you know, mounted to the mast yes. of that junk. It's, um, yeah, this movie, when... Bond plays it poorly. You have a Bond full of jokes. And we, we haven't gotten there yet, but uh, in in Moonraker, when you have a pigeon doing a double take, and I'm sorry, but you know when we get there in our series of podcasts, that'll be a whole 45 minutes just talking about how terrible that moment is. There are a couple of moments in this movie where clearly they're just going for the joke, and they regretted it, which is interesting to read that in the aftermath but there are moments with knickknack where he's so twisted as a character that even though they're making a joke you sort of buy it because he's twisted because he's off his nut and he's having a good time at being insane so it kind of works well, yeah, I mean, like the whole scene where suddenly the figures in High Fat's garden come to life. Yes, and Nick yes. Nack is up on the table with Bond passed out with the pitchfork going, I'm just going to end it now. Absolutely. Going, wait, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like Absolutely. mini Poseidon to take you out. So, yes. I mean, yes. Um, yeah. One of the, the characters that I wish that we had gotten more of was uh, Soon Tech O's Lieutenant Hip. Uh, he doesn't get a ton to do, but he he seems so fun. Like, and he's got these nieces that are totally kick ass. I mean, like, they're just like they're saving Bond from this uh, martial arts school. Which, I mean, that would be a creepy place to wake up. Uh, you know, you wake up and uh, here, have some tea, have something to eat, and now you uh, are going to die because somebody's going to take you out. One of it's these a dudes. very inefficient school that they keep killing each other. Yes, <laughs> you know. I mean, I know you want to really sort it down to the best of the best, but it's very inefficient. You're going to run out of students to teach. You will, and then your tuition money dries up. You know, how do you run a place? Yeah. What I love about that scene quickly before we dive back into Lieutenant Hip was the fact that Bond realizes I'm out of my depth. I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. I got to get mm-hmm. out of here. Mm-hmm. And so that he dives out and they come and save him. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and, you know, what? here's the thing about that scene. So clearly that was a scene inserted because, hey, uh, martial arts movies are hot now. So let's put in a thing like that. But I buy that so much more than feeling like Live and Let Die was a ripoff of all the black exploitation movies that were hot at that time. It, there's just something about it that I accept much more. And, and it, it fits with the theme, it fits with the location, um, it fits with the characters. And that's actually a really good fight that Bond has with, with his final 
adversary in there, the guy in the black who kind of stands up and he kind of cocks his neck. Um, Bond would have been dead in about a minute, <laughs> you know, but it's a good fight. It, it's played out well. And you can tell that Bond kind of learned from watching them first. Okay, I'm going to do these couple moves and now I'm going to jump out the window. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Just <laughs> get out. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, again, it's it's the thing, this Bond isn't going to win that kind of fight. And uh, knowing when to get out is very important as Bond. That's what keeps you alive. And the fact that he has Lieutenant Hip to save him with his nieces is just hysterical uh, because you are expecting Bond to step forward and like, no, I got this, ladies. Uh, I don't want you to get hurt. And then they're the ones who, you know, kick everybody's butt. It's just fantastic. Look, I'm just going to go on the record right now to say that uh, my last name may be Champion, but there's no cooler name than Lieutenant Hip. <laughs> it is very true. You know? I mean, yeah. Would you rather be Hip or a Champion? Mm, I don't know. Well, if I could be Lieutenant, it still, I think Lieutenant Hip is it, it, look i mean look it's, it's cool. a great rap name uh it's a great band name it's a great album name i mean really any you could apply that name to anything well and that's the thing you're absolutely right hip is better because if you're lieutenant champion then you're only a lieutenant champion yeah, well, see right exactly like, but lieutenant hip just sounds yeah cool yeah yeah mm. But yeah, I I'm wish that character got more time though, because he is so much fun and he's very um, relatable as, you know, he's driving him to High Fat's house and he says, I, I just had to pick the girl, my nieces up from school. Hope you don't mind <laughs> carpooling. Yes, that was really funny. One of the things Bond movies do that I like is those kind of characters that Bond doesn't do all this alone. Like he usually does have support. Uh, and that's that's part of being uh, a spy is you do have a network of people. Yes, you're going to be out on your own sometimes, but there is usually a contact that you can contact if you need help. And I, I love that, um, you know, kind of seeing the, the different agencies work together, whether it's uh, the CIA or the Chinese intelligence agency that we'll see, you know, maybe in like uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, that kind of stuff. You know, it's always fun to get to see the other secret agents from the different characters. Or, hey, we might even see a KGB agent next, mm. next movie. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Talking about that KGB agent leads me to talk about the fact that this movie has two Bond women, and both of them are Swedish models. Hey, That's really interesting. In a perfect world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, everybody wants to be a Swedish supermodel. Right, so. right. I wanted, uh, this is the thing that's so interesting uh, to me, because it's a very different world back then, where Britt Eklund, her desire and goal in life is to be a Bond girl. Yeah, right. And she has no problems with the idea of being a Bond, like she wants nothing more than to be a Bond girl. And I think that's fascinating to me, and I wanted to discuss that just a little bit with, with both of you, and, and ask you specifically, Christy, like, what do you think is different about that where for her it doesn't it there isn't that connotation that it bothers her like it's a it's a it's a high honor to be a bond girl i think that it would be considered a high honor in the sense that it's this tradition now that's gone on for a while and you know although you know it could be played either as always just a, a second to bond and he doesn't care about them that they're usually very assertive strong women that 
at some point in the movie either interact with him in um, a crucial scene or, um, you know, the main Bond girl in the film is usually not the sacrificial lamb. You know, there's, I I feel like there's oftentimes two of them, you know, like in um, not live and let die, but diamonds are forever. um, You know, we had plenty O'Toole that got killed off, but Jill St. John stayed on. Um, And, and even though she had that terrible scene with the machine gun at the end, still in general, she was very like, Bond, don't worry about this. I've got it. And I think that that is something to aspire to. Um, And, you know, I, I would love to be a Bond girl, but I don't think that that's happening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're lost. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great idea. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, first and foremost, actors want to work. So, you know, wherever the work is, they want to work. And, Mary Goodnight had been a recurring character in the Bond books uh, along the lines of a money penny. So I can see where an actor would lobby to have a role that should have carried on. I mean, what if Mary Goodnight had been around for this and The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker and, you know, maybe a couple more then then we would be talking about Britt Eklund in the pantheon of the Bond characters like M and Moneypenny and Q. That would have been a pretty cool thing. You know? It's interesting that Moneypenny is the one that seems to carry on and they don't take a Bond girl and do that kind of thing with them. I, I think that they know, you know, it's sort of like uh, getting rid of Yeoman Rand on Star Trek. I, I think they figured for the sake of movies and TV, at least the way that they were writing these, that they couldn't have a recurring female character. And that's a shame. And we kind of talked about that at the end of uh, HMSS. Like, well, could you actually carry on with Bond in another movie with his wife? I wondered that at the end of Spectre. I love the fact that it's just so exciting to me to see the camera pull back and there's Bond and his Aston Martin and there's Madeline Swan, and they've both survived. You know, and they they both are going to carry on. Now we don't know what happens next, <laughs> but well, and and I was just re-listening to that show actually. Mm-hmm. John knows we were making because uh, I watched all of the Craig movies, and then I was listening back to our conversation mainly for you and Norm. Uh, and I I was exactly at that same point, and I'm I'm still at that point. I'm I want Craig to come back and do one more Bond so they can wrap up that storyline because I feel like it'd be so interesting to have Madeline Swan back. Does she end up dying? What happens? All of those kind of things. But what I would love for them to do, and I think this would be fascinating, have Bond have that kind of on-again, off-again relationship with a woman where they both kind of understand the game. Uh, But they have these feelings for each other and, you know... And I think you're absolutely right to pull out that Mary Goodnight could have been that kind of character. Uh, would have been very interesting to see her have the opportunity to come back and be somebody that, you know, like Sylvia Trench, you know, whenever he's home or whenever they're in the same city, you know, they're going to have a great time together and they're going to hang out together. And, uh, you know, they they might even have some feelings for each other that go beyond, but they can't let it go too far because of the life that they both lead in, in MI6. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was it was disappointing that they don't do that because I think she's a lot of fun and they 
they play her a little too dumb, and it's disappointing Bingo. that that happens. So I I love both of these actresses. They're both gorgeous. They both belong in the world of this movie. There's so much to like, but I hate that Britt Eklund, well, I hate that Mary Goodnight is played dumb. And as the, not just dumb, but the butt of the joke. Yeah. Literally yeah. the butt of the joke. That's not cool. Um, and I love Maude Adams. I, you know, she's abused in this movie. The character is abused. Not not Maude Adams, but, but Miss Anders is this sad case. And and I know that that's what the role calls for because that that is why she's trying to escape Scaramanga and that is why she's just you know stuck in this horrible position. But again, that's the thing that would be written very differently forty years later, where you give her a little more strength, a little more backbone. It, it's painful to see her get pushed around by Scaramanga. It's painful to see her get pushed around by Bond. And I know that Roger Moore was uncomfortable with that scene. It feels a little gratuitous to just say, well, we're going to toughen up Bond by making him twist her arm. And honestly, for me, the arm twisting didn't bother me as much as the slap. Yeah. Oh, here, here. That yeah. felt to me like an abusive husband situation. Like it was just mm -hmm. weird. And it, it, yeah, it felt too gratuitous to me too, because it, you know, it, it's not, it didn't feel like a scene where it was two agents fighting each other kind of thing, like in an action movie. It felt just very one-sided of Bond one-upping her, and it felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is that if you wanted to see it done right, you need to watch Skyfall, because who that character mm -hmm. is is Severine. Severine is Maude Adams' uh, mm -hmm. Andre Anders here, who has the agency to know that the going against the bad guy is probably going to get her yeah. killed, but it's her only way out. Uh, and and it was disappointing to see Bond take the abusive route mm -hmm. when he didn't mm -hmm. need to. You know, she's telling him the truth. Yeah. He should be able to figure that out from her complete fear all over her face. So, yeah, I think it's interesting because... You know, uh, there's a, like you said, Chrissy, there is a difference if she is another female agent, like for uh, something like the KGB or something like that, uh, somebody who you might have to get rough with. That's a completely different story to a woman here who has gotten caught in the middle of a man she probably didn't know who this was and, until it was too late, you know, uh, and, and that's not really her fault necessarily so yeah i think the way that it's handled here on for both of them is disappointing uh, maude adams will get to come back in a bond movie that i well octopussy uh and uh she was the only woman who will play two different bond women in two different movies so uh you know here here for her but it is frustrating because i i like both of them they don't get necessarily serviced by the story well, and part of that specifically is the way that they pray uh, Mary Goodnight, that she's just such a bumbling idiot. And that's like, but she works for MI6. How does she get so that I job? Mean, right. Can you at least, how does she get that job? And can you at least say, um, 
that, you know, she's somebody who normally is behind a desk. So we kind of get, I mean, give her that out so that it's, you know, like, yeah, she's thrown in way over her head. Nobody would be this good, you know? Um, and then yes, to make her butt the literal butt of a joke because she almost kills Bond because she's yeah. not paying attention yeah. to where her butt is in the in the scene is too much. It's just too and much. And something I wanted to ask both of you um, was, did the scene bother you when she gets pushed into the closet and Mom oh. Adams comes in? And yeah. you're like, no, they're not going to do that. Okay, well, they yeah, did. They did. They did. Yeah, a little not cool. I mean, you know, the front door was right around the corner. <laughs> so she's got her own room, I think. It might be a little humiliating to go have to get another key from the front desk, but it's mm-hmm. less humiliating than hanging out in a closet. And they make you feel While like... While they do it. Right, and they make yeah. you feel like Goodnight is his girlfriend almost because of the way that they talk with each other. Mm-hmm. So especially from the standpoint of thinking you're in a relationship together and then you're listening to him sleep with someone else outside the closet. Yeah. It is terrible. What's What's so interesting is the way in which... Roger Moore's Bond is the most dismissive of women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He just seems to, and and somebody even calls this out to him in the movie. Like I I know how you like to waste your time. Like it, to him, sex is just a way to waste time. It has nothing to do with connecting with anybody. It, you can understand maybe in context of Tracy dying, how he would totally divorce himself from that, but. It's just the way that it's played. Like women are these disposable toys to be enjoyed. And then and, and so yes, it becomes this ridiculous over the top male fantasy. I've got one girl in the closet waiting for me while I screw the other girl. And it it makes you un unfortunately uncomfortable when it doesn't have to be like that. And he um, becomes less likable and you're just kind of like, mm, it, what Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think you're you're right because you called out that scene with him and um Andrea Anders and and the kind of abusiveness of of that scene for no good reason. I, it doesn't have to be like that, and it it does seem to be. I don't know. I don't. I can't. I don't know if we can just say it's the '60s or in the '70s. Well, attitude. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing. You you can't even cut them too much slack for this being 1974. 1974 is still after the feminist revolution of the 1960s. It's after you know, a a sea change in the way that women are portrayed in media. And and granted, in 1974, there's still a long way to go. In 2017, there's still a long way to go. But this feels like a huge step backward even for them. And and I think, too, like, uh, and I don't want anybody, please don't, like, we obviously love parts of of the characters Mm -hmm. and, and, and their portrayal and everything. Um, I, I don't want anybody just to hear us complaining about it, <laughs> things we can't change because it was, you know, that long ago. Um, but I think it is right to point out the things that were good and the things that aren't so good. And, and as you just said, John, even for that time period, you would hope that they might have been a little bit more self-aware. Because we've seen it before. We, we, we had Pussy Galore 10 years before this movie. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and I think back as we talked through those early Connery movies in the way that uh 
you know, women were treated. I even think of uh, from Russia with Love with Tatiana, who is an agent and everything, and uh, her relationship with Bond, and that they kind of have this relationship that forms and and all. And yeah, it, it seems like there was more respect then than you get later on, which is kind of strange. Uh, and it won't come around again in the respect sense till much later. So, uh, I got to ask you guys about this um, part of the movie that happens where I just feel like there's too much Sergeant nope. Peppa. <laughs> nope. Just, nope. Yeah. Nope. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, and I, I don't even know if it's him and his Lonely Hearts Club band <laughs> that I'm not digging. Uh, but why, why, why did they feel like they had to add him into this movie? Because as we just talked about with the Bond women, and there's some disappointment there. Let's just be honest. He's not funny. He adds nothing to the story, and everything he says is so racist. It's just, it's, it's painful to watch because he ruins all of those scenes this is what i was saying before it's a difference between a bond character or a moment finding a joke or finding humor and a bond character or a moment going for a joke just grabbing the joke because they can manufacturing it and that is what jw pepper is all about and it hurts now here's the thing i would have forgiven them if in the boat chase and you have all these tourists in the boat and if he had said something entirely less stupid, but at least he's, he's there and you acknowledge like, Oh, he still exists in this world. And isn't it funny that bond is in another boat chase and he recognizes even for a split second, Hey, that's the, but then you cut away. Then you absolutely get out of that and you do not come back to it again. Done. Done. <laughs> Just have him go, wasn't I in a boat chase before? Yeah, just that look. <laughs> and then you're done. You get out of there. Absolutely. You you called But it. I do have to say, though, when, when I first saw Pepper come back on screen, I did die laughing and said, they brought Pepper back? <laughs> they brought Pepper back. Of okay. all characters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing you called it, John, is that, look, even with food, you don't add too much. You don't. Pepper. You don't. You don't. Yeah. Even with and 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 if he had just if it had just been one scene, but then they just they kept adding him into more and more scenes into that part of the film, and it was just it was so frustrating. And and then the action there mm. seems so familiar because we've already just done a boat chase, and now we're doing another boat chase. And I have to say, this one is not yeah. exciting. Yeah. It, it needed to last much shorter just because like the the joke of it or the, the interesting part of it is, oh, they don't have these massive power boats that can cross land, <laughs> you know. The joke is it's these tiny rickety things that are not built for chases. But then it, you've established that, then get out of it, move on. All that needs to happen yeah. is that Bond chases Scaramanga and Scaramanga gets away. But there was yep. one redeeming part of this, a gem that I found that I thought was interesting. Apparently, when I was looking through all of the cars in the movie, um, they had the, it was the AMC Hornet that they were in, um, did the flip across a bridge over the water. 
And apparently there was so much effort by everyone on set that went into doing that scene and that it was all done in one take. For real. I love it. That was unbelievable. And I liked the car. I just didn't like Pepper in it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, can can he like fall out as they do the flip? Oh, that'd that would be, be great. Oh man, that's yeah. a great oh, rewrite. No. See, now yeah. that's the joke I want to see. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're absolutely that that car flip is so perfect, and then they ruin it with a yes. pen. Oh, it's uh, horrible. Yep, yep. Uh, another moment that both John Barry and Guy Hamilton said that they regret, and really? I agree with their regret. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. If you can have enough regret for that, but you should, uh, and you should carry that with you for. In fact, you should do a special edition. And edit yes, that good out. call. Good call. Just, just George yes. Lucas, that crap. Um, you know, uh, because it it it's frustrating because that that is such a pivotal Bond mm-hmm. moment there. Like it just you you know, and it is everything that made those Bond movies cool at that point in time because they were doing all of these stunts for real and and when they talked about that they created a computer cro- program specific and like back in the 70s so we're not talking today's computer i mean we're talking like it looks like original mm-hmm. tron uh with the, the lines and it, just to get everything just right and then they had to engineer the car specifically they had to actually widen the car and everything had to be centered and just perfect and yeah, they do that for real. In one take, there's no CGI. It's just a guy and a car flipping over. It's amazing. And so, yeah, it. and then it's ruined in the final product because you take away the magnificence of what just happened for real with a cartoon penny whistle. And you're like, oh, facepalm moment, big time. Well, I wanted to ask, uh, so as we're kind of wrapping up, um, what did you think of the theme song, The Man with the Golden Gun, by uh, the singer? We got Lulu here doing it, and I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm kind of on the fence, so I'm I'm wondering what points you guys have that might sway me. For me, it was kind of forgetful, you know, a forgettable. Um, it it didn't seem to be a really powerful song. It just kind of told you what you already knew you had seen in the scenes before. It's a guy that has a golden gun and they repeat it over and over. Um, yeah, it was boring to me. So uh, here's where you're still going to be on the on the fence uh, because I, I'm going to take the opposite approach and I'm going to say I actually love it. I really do. Uh, remember when we were talking about Live and Let Die, how the soundtrack um, is this like funked up 70s version of Bond and the edits don't always work in the movie, but the soundtrack on its own really works. And to yeah. me, it's sort of like, okay, they're staying funky, but now they've decided to put in this strong female voice again like they had done with classic Bond, like uh, having Shirley Bassey before. So it I, it just kind of works, man. I mean, when I listen to a Bond uh, compilation disc and there are certain songs that I know I will skip over, that's not one of them. So I'm I'm on board with it. That's so interesting to me because, yeah, I, I'm totally the one that like, I don't even remember the song at the moment. <laughs> it's just not that's memorable great. for me. Whereas Live and Let Die, I've heard on the radio. Sure. The man yeah, with right. a golden gun. <laughs> Yeah, that's all I remember is yeah. that it, uh, so 
I guess I'm really kind of just in the middle. I think it works better for the actual film than it actually does as a song. And that happens in the Bond movies. I think uh, the Spectre song is like that. It works better in the context of the movie and the the credit sequence and everything that it's doing there than it necessarily does as a song that I want to listen to beyond that. Uh, I think this one is serviceable. And I don't think there's, you know, John Barry's back with the music. And yeah, I think uh, the music actually just fits. It, it, it feels like it's it's more the the acoustic wallpaper for the movie uh, than something that really stuck out to me uh, in Live and Let Die, where it was he was definitely trying something funky, you know. Uh, and yeah, I think it, it it's good here. Um, so it, it's not a complete standout in any way, but it, it's not detracting or hurting or anything like that, which is always good. You know, I'd rather just have a soundtrack be there than something that takes away from the experience of the movie. So that definitely doesn't happen. Um, I, which leads me to ask, I mean, okay, so we kind of talked through the, the movie and all this behind the scenes stuff and everything. I'm really interested to see how this falls down on the rating scale for you and uh christy what do you think i decided after everything to give it i originally said four and now i'm saying three um three what though three yuck drinks that's gonna be my thing Uh, out of five (laughs) out of ten out of three three out out of ten um for me christopher lee redeemed it a lot um and seeing him a lot younger than as Count Dooku, um, he really, it was, he was so, such a presence and really played a great villain. And I loved his weapon. Um, but a lot of things in the film detracted from it for me. Not that I thought that um, Roger Moore was a terrible Bond or anything like that. He does have likable things about him, but the abusiveness feel of the scene with him and, Maude Adams and then later the scene with you know having the two of them in the same room that fell down for me and made me a little annoyed and then that they gave that dinner scene with him and Goodnight where she does kind of give him a tough time and say women are disposable to you I'm not going to play your game and then she comes back and says but please love me you know it's kind of upsetting too um so yeah, overall there were things I liked about it, but it was probably one of the lower Bond films for me. What do you? Uh, where are you, John? Uh, because uh, I feel like you're a little bit more on the positive side, maybe. Yeah. So uh, here's the thing. You know, when we did our last show, I realized that I liked Live and Let Die a lot less than I remembered. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and now we do this show and I realize that I like the man with the golden gun a lot more than I remembered. Um, There's something about it that so in terms of plot, you know, I I love the tension between Bond and Scaramanga. I love that you're kind of thrown off at first by whose intent really it is to get them together. I think that's a nice little fake out for the audience. even, you know, the if you want to call it the B plot about the energy crisis, uh, the A and the B plot kind of work nicely together, still still topical. Even if we don't understand the motivation, <laughs> that's fine. You can still kind of relate to it. Um, this movie feels like the 70s, but in a good way, not like Diamonds Are Forever. 
Um, the styles are a little more refined. They're a little more settled in. Roger Moore looks good in a 70s suit. He can just kind of carry it off. The clothes on the women are more elegant than they were in Diamonds of Forever. or um, There were moments in Live and Let Die. But, but this is a little more polished. And then we got those exotic locations back that really kind of work here. I also like detective work in the first half of the movie where Bond has to go get the the slug from the, the assassination of 002. And that scene was very reminiscent of Goldfinger, the scene in the dressing room in Goldfinger, I thought. And I like where it leads him. I like his meeting with uh, Lao Shea with the, uh, the, the rifle. You know, all that little step-by-step detective work putting it together. Um. I add points for things like the Queen Elizabeth, of course, because I'm biased. I'm going to take away big points for J.W. Pepper, for the mistreatment of women here, and for the poor use of humor. But that's a thing that, again, sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. It depends on how they approach it. Um, I give this movie, for going on a scale of 10, I give this movie 7 out of 10 Solex agitators. And, um, and and I'll follow it up by saying this, because I had this conversation online with somebody who was maybe questioning my taste. And, uh, and I said this, I have no guilty pleasures. The things that I like, I fully embrace. So I will fully embrace this movie. And it is not a guilty pleasure in the least. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it is what it is. You know, we accept it as early 70s Roger Moore, James Bond. And the last exploration into that, kind of a failure in ways I did not remember it being a failure. This one, they're starting to find their traction again. They're starting to find the game again. So that's where I land on this one. It's interesting when you compare uh, the first three uh, Connery movies with the first three Roger Moore movies and with the Roger Moore movies they are really having a much harder time kind of figuring out the formula for him than they did with Connery I think John when we talked about Dr. No and From Russia With Love we really felt like those movies are kind of firing Mm -hmm. on most Mm -hmm. of the cylinders already and they are having a much harder time now when you watch this right after you watch Live and Let Die this movie yeah. feels like a palate cleanser in a lot of ways. It it it's not half, a, which is sad to say, <laughs> it's not half as offensive yeah. as "Live and Let Die," and 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 that's one of the things I think that makes it better. Is it in the context? It is a better movie. I think the villain is much more interesting. Uh, it, it it could have been even more interesting. And and if you let your mind run, it becomes more interesting. Uh, all the things we talked about uh, with why you take away points, why you'd give points. This one is kind of middle of the road. That happens in the in a franchise this long. and uh, But I would say it's more enjoyable to watch than Live and Let Die. And therefore, I'm going to give this, I'm going to fall in the middle of you guys. It's six out of ten accidental butt bumps. So... <laughs> Uh, and uh, it really is. It's 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 above average, but it's just above average for a Bond movie. 
but that's much better than where we were the last time. And I think that there is much more that you can kind of dig into. And as you said, John, the shape is starting to form for the look and the feel of the Roger Moore 70s era Bond. And we're about to hit that stride in the next movie. And they will hit it, and they will hit it beautifully. Uh, so we'll talk about that one next time. I don't want to give too much away. But I, I love the fact that we got... And we always get a chance to really dig into the meat of this this Bond franchise, the history, the behind the scenes, everything. And, and I know that um, it from the download numbers, the fans seem to love it as well. And it's a joy to get to do this. We get to do that because I got amazing associate producers here on the 602 Club. Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson have lovingly been supporting this show through Patreon for years now and i really appreciate these guys i also appreciate what they do for the rest of the network uh if if you look on apple podcasts you're going to see a plethora and yes i said a plethora of podcasts that we have here at truck fm for you and the cost for those is enormous uh and we can't make that happen alone and so go over to patreon.com slash and you can see how you can be part of our team Make sure all of that comes to each and every week. We've got some amazing perks that come to you uh, for different levels, whether it's the Patreon roundtable, access to uh, exclusive content, or early access to shows, uh, even before they get released sometimes. You can get to listen to them before anybody else. All of those kind of things. Honestly, every little bit helps. And so just go over to patreon.com slash and you can see how you can join up with us and make sure that all of what comes to you, not just here in the 602 Club, comes each and every week. Uh, now, love having you both on. I cannot wait until we dive into The Spy Who Loved Me uh, soon. We'll be there soon. We'll be there before we know it. But, uh, Christy, let everybody know if they want to talk to you some more about Bond uh, online or anything else where they can find you. Sure. Um, so you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at more Christy, M-O-R-R instead of M-O-R-E. Um, and I talk about Bond, Star Wars, Firefly, Doctor Who, Star Trek sometimes, not as much as the other stuff. Um, but yeah, I actually wanted to tell you guys, I introduced a new fan to the podcast. All um, right. Yeah, my friend's husband is apparently a big Bond fan, oh, and excellent. he said he even had a 007 hat. Yes. Nice. I'm so jealous. Yeah, me too. <laughs> What's his name? What's his name? Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan. Thanks. 602 Club. Uh, great. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will continue to and uh, enjoy these Bond episodes and many more. Now, John, uh, if anybody wants to uh, find out where you, Mr. International Man of Mystery, is, uh, what what's happening these days with you? What's going on? What you're doing? Or they just want to talk about, um, well, maybe DVD. Wait. Nobody has DVDs anymore. Um, no, no. Well, Matt, you know, when I'm not uh, hidden away in a uh, secret headquarters somewhere in the East 40s in New York, um, you can find me online. You can find me on Twitter at DVD Geeks. I know it's, it's a little retro. It's a little outdated, but then so am I. Um, you can also find me if you want to talk Star Trek at Mission Log Pod. So missionlogpodcast.com. That's the show that I do for Runberry Entertainment, also found right here on Trek FM. 
Excellent. Excellent. Uh, well, I, it seriously, having both of you on, I, I really do, as much as I look forward to all the shows that we do, these are so fun and so special. And I, I love the, the, the chemistry that we've created doing these together. And I, again, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, we really appreciate it. We do this because we love it. Uh, and we appreciate the fact that you love it. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Uh, you can also find me uh, here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine. Uh, I want to mention that uh, we're doing a review contest right now for the 602 Club. I- I'd love to give away some very exclusive, uh, Christy, you-, you know how exclusive this stuff is, from Funko Pop. We're giving away some exclusive Guardians of the Galaxy stuff that came in their uh, collector's box that you can only get from that. And... Um, We've gotten a brand new review. Wanted to thank uh, this reviewer for going in, spending the time. It takes a couple of minutes over there on iTunes to do this. Uh, but uh, we got a brand new review here from Jules Verne, 1492. They said, this is the podcast for all your geeky needs, five stars. So thank you so much for doing that. And they're entered into our review contest so uh by june 2nd we're gonna have uh the review contest in so just get your review in and uh hopefully you'll be able to win uh, and there's a picture on the babel conference or it's been all over twitter you can see what you'll win it's some pretty cool stuff like a really awesome scarf for guardians of the galaxy things like that uh you can also find me on the nerd party network i'm doing a show called aggressive negotiations with john mills where we talk about Star Wars. It's great. I love that show. In fact, uh, if you kind of want to know more about me and then next week know more about John, we're doing a show talking about how we take Star Wars personally, uh, what it's really meant to us, what it's kind of taught us, where we see ourselves in the series with the characters. It's it's fun. I, I mean, and if you want to know kind of who we are and the nitty gritty, check that out. Uh, I also do a show called Outpost, a Harry Potter podcast with Dre Kaufman, and we're walking through every chapter of Harry Potter, uh, and we're in the second book now, so Chamber of Secrets. Make sure you check it out. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear? James Bond is here!